All right, why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 8, please. Matthew chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 17. And uh, the message is entitled, The Miraculous Power of Jesus. Jesus has just finished his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, as you know, to his disciples, the only ones who were able to live that out, not the crowds. They had seen their bankruptcy before God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 3. Being bankrupt, seeing your need of salvation based on the justification of Jesus Christ. They had perceived the horrific pain um, and destruction they had brought upon their own lives through a life of sin, as well as pain and destruction to others. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted in Matthew 5, 4. And they had understood that religious and self-righteous um, um, attempts to merit before God really uh, exempt people from heaven. Even as Matthew 5, 20 said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. Now, mountaintop experiences are indispensably valuable because they prepare us to live out our lives for Christ in the real fallen world of sin and death. This is where we live, ladies and gentlemen. And so Jesus now, having declared himself to be the ultimate authority, now he descends to manifest his miraculous power to meet urgent needs that are in the real world. Let me read here for us, verse 1 through 17, chapter 8. When he had come down from the mountain, a great multitude followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be clean. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into utter darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And the servant was healed that same hour. Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. And so he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose and served them. And then at evening uh, had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirit with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself 
took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Jesus had declared himself to be the ultimate authority on the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard this been said, I say unto you. Now he descends to manifest his miraculous power to meet urgent needs through three miracles. Miracles here in chapter 8 and 9 come in series of threes, in groups of threes. And we're going to take the first three. And he does this by first the healing of the leper, verse 1 through 4. Second, the healing of the centurion's servant, in verse 5 through 13. And thirdly, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, 14 through 17. Behind this power is the ultimate authority, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He begins here with the healing of the leper, verse 1 through 4. Notice that the demand on Jesus was constant. In verse 1, it says that Jesus had just descended from the mountain when he had come down from that mountain. He's been up to teaching the Sermon on the Mount. The area is the Sea of Galilee. Some of you have been there. Some of you will be there when we go over there in May. The traditional location is close to the city of Capernaum, north uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee. The time is the Sabbath, as we'll point out at the end. From the Sermon on the Mount to that, it's the Sabbath day. There was certain distance they could go, so it was within that. Now notice Jesus was followed by the crowd. Great multitudes followed him. You see, if we go to chapter 4, verse 23, before the Sermon on the Mount, the power of the kingdom had been manifested. It says there, Jesus had gone all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. So his ministry was already at hand. Now, if you're standing on the east uh, side of, of, of the Sea of Galilee, and I'm sitting in the middle, I point this finger to the north there where Capernaum is, and over here towards the end of that, Three-quarters of the ministry of Jesus happened there, in that area. Three-quarters of it were up in the north, up in the top corner. In Matthew 4, 24, it gives us the result of that great following. He says, so his fame was throughout all of, over Syria. Therefore, they brought people to Jesus who were sick, afflicted with various diseases, tormented, demon-possessed, paralytics, and healed them. There was nothing he couldn't heal. There was nothing he couldn't do. There was no one he turned away. Um, this was unheard of. In fact, in um, chapter 4, verse 25, down to 5, 1, it says, uh, the crowds here describe the great multitude followed from the Galilee, the Decapolis on the east side, the Gentile, 10 Gentile cities, Jerusalem, uh, Judea, beyond the Jordan, the east side, before um, he went up to the mountain and he's been teaching and now he is down. He's coming down, but the crowds are still around. Verse 2 gives us a dejected person that approached Jesus. He was a leopard. It says that he appeared suddenly and unexpected. The words, and behold. It means um, to give one's attention, to fix one's eyes upon, catching one by surprise or startling. That's exclamatory. Uh, this is an imperative command, by the way, in, in the era's middle voice to be done by the person who is reading or hearing this, uh, to, to fix your eyes upon, gaze. The condition, notice, was a dangerous one. He was a leper who was approaching them. He came to them. Uh, lepers, as you know, um, were not to do that. They were very contagious. Luke says he was full of leprosy. Chapter 5 of Luke, verse 12. Um, it would spread, the disease would spread throughout the body to the uh, extreme 
um, the fingers, the feet, and all of that, they would lose the sensation, and it would disfigure the whole face. And it wasn't so much that things would fall off, but because of the disfigurement, the loss of feeling, if they cut themselves, they wouldn't realize that, or if they stood on hot things, they wouldn't be able to sense it. Uh, it's a horrible disease. Um, a leper was to cry out, unclean, at six feet, and if it's downwind, 150 feet, to warn everybody around them. Notice he was considered as dead in, real, in reality, and the scriptures point this out. While he was alive, he was considered dead, separate from his family, never to have company, to touch his wife, touch his children, to hug, to meet anybody else. They were excluded completely. If you remember Miriam and her rebellion, God struck her with leprosy and Moses interceded and uh, he restored her. You remember Uzziah the king in 2 Kings 15, 4 through 5, that he, he presumed upon the priest's office to offer incense, uh, not obeying the priest, he tried to stop him. And he became a leopard and lived the rest of his lives in an isolation. And his son reigned in his stead. The law of leprosy is found in Leviticus 13 and 14. It gives you all the different things for the leprosy of a man, for a house, the cleansing, the rituals, all of that. Now, he was ostracized from society and confined to live outside the city walls, separate from all people. And yet God has created you and I for fellowship to be in society. We can't live alone. And yet what do people like to do sometimes? Just isolate themselves. We need people. Listen to Leviticus 13, 45 through 46. Now the leopard on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bared. And he shall cover his mustache, his upper lip, and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall be unclean all the days that he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Completely separate from the people of God, family, everything. Horrible. This, his demeanor was honorable. Notice it says that he came and worshipped him. The word worship, as you know, we've seen it before, proskuneo. It means... Um, to be highly revered and to ascribe adoration to someone by kissing of the hand and bowing of the knees or prostrating one's face to the ground. It's used like that in much of the um, Eastern uh, cultures. And uh, we see it in Scripture also. Um, Luke eight forty one, Acts 5, 10, and many other places. Uh, um, you remember that when Peter went to the house of Cornelius, he, he knelt down and Peter said, Get up, I'm a man just like you. Mark says he was kneeling. Luke says he fell on his face. Clearly, this leper, being a Jew, knew that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And it's verified by the statement of his words. He's not just being polite, sir, but he knows he's Messiah. Mark 1.40, Luke 5.12 also confirmed this. Now, notice his words were those of faith. He acknowledged Jesus as his Messiah by calling him Lord Kurios. Again, he expressed the will of Jesus to be done. If you are willing. He didn't come demanding, but 
openly knowing that Jesus could do it if he's willing. He declared his confident trust in the ability of Jesus to cleanse them from his leprosy. You can make me clean. Underline that word clean. A leopard is never said to be healed, but cleansed. All right? Because no one can heal him. God provided this miraculous provision when he wanted to move upon a person sovereignly. Verse 3 and 4, the delightful response of Jesus was to cleanse the leper. In verse 3 there, the method of Jesus to heal the leper was shocking. Then Jesus put out his hand to touch him. The crowd must have freaked out. No, no, don't touch him. You'll be defiled, you'll be contaminated. The authority and power of Jesus was self-evident. As he reaches out the touch, he says, I am willing. Be cleansed. Jesus wasn't saying, well, I hope this works. Mark alone tells us Jesus was moved with compassion in Mark 141. Compassion. The man was cleansed by the time Jesus touched him. You see, Jesus never was contaminated or defiled. By the time his hand touched his body, the words had already said, I am willing to be cleansed. God knows the heart of all people, if they are sincere or not, and God is sovereign when it comes to touching a person's life in the context here, cleansing, healing. Notice the complete restoration was witnessed by Matthew. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. I mean, right now, gone. He was made clean. Catharsis, we get a word catharsis. Psychologists use that to purge a person. They send you into a room and you tell that Matic in there, what you really feel about them. Pretend it's your mom, your dad, or you get a stick and you beat them with a bat. Catharsis, you let out steam, but the problem is you get steamed up again when you leave, you know? But this is the word that they get it from. Okay? Clean, to be purged. Unstained, physically, from the leprosy. Gone. Again, in the Bible, leprosy is never said to be healed, but cleansed. Look at verse 4. The confirmation of the cleansing was ordered by Jesus. The declaration and Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one. We, hear, we read this all the time by Jesus. He, he didn't want to be um, promoted or to be uh, uh, made famous. That was, that's not what he came for. This is an imperative command. The present active for the people would attempt to make him king, John 6.15 tells us. We see this constantly. It wasn't his time yet. But also the instructions said, but go your way, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded. He came to fulfill the law, not to put it aside. This was the command instruction of the law. The law commanded it. Though leprosy was incurable, God made a provision in Leviticus 14, 1 through 32, for the day that God Cleanse the leopard. Wow. Mercy. 
the revelation is as a testimony to them. To who? The priest in Jerusalem. That it was the Messiah who had healed him, completely cleansed him. The promised Messiah. The implication was that he would be restored to his family, society, and be full of joy of life now by the grace of God's mercy. You remember Nahum was cleansed from his leprosy, the Syrian. The little um, Jewish captive told his wife that, you know, there was, a, there was a prophet Elijah who could heal him. So he sent him with, with gifts and letters and everything else, got to Elijah's door, you know, knocked on the door and, you know, he comes out and, you know, he expected him to do something miraculous, pocus dominocus, you know, you're healed. And, you know, and he just said, hey, go wash in the muddy Jordan. What? He got offended. He's going back. So the servant said, this is the master. What are you all uptight for? I mean, what do you got to lose? If you go down, nothing happens. So what? So he goes down and, you know, one, two, three, four, and then comes seven, he's up pink as a baby. For God, nothing's impossible. Now, whether he's willing, his willingness is, 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 is directed by his wisdom. What's best for you? What's best for me? Not what I think is best. If God would have given me what I prayed for so many times the last 44 years, God help me. But he knows better. Your children ask you a lot of dumb things. Do you say, oh, well, you know, I do love you. Okay, I'll give you some razors to play. You know. No, you don't. Leprosy is a type of sin in Scripture. Leprosy destroys the nerve endings. And so the person cannot feel, cannot sense touch, making them unable to feel pain and um, severe consequences. Likewise, sin, it deadens our ability to sense the destruction that sin brings on our life and the life of others. It calluses our conscience and hardens our heart. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 3, 6, 23 tells us. But sin destroys. It, uh, it, it, it allows us not to sense the, the things that God wants, He desires. So we're always encouraged to, to, to walk in the light, to keep our accounts short, to walk according to the power of the Spirit of God. Leprosy separates and isolates a person from God and people. Likewise, sin separates us from God. Um, Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 confirms this. Likewise, sin separates us from people through guilt, shame, and consequences that ruin our lives and the life of others. At times, even within the church, there has to be excommunication because people rebel so much against the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 5, 4 through 5, we have one of those cases where that young man was sleeping with his stepmother. Paul says, in, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus that motion, that action, that decision was out of love, not revenge. You as a parent, when you're chasing your son, your daughter severely, and you have to boot them out of the house, it's not because you hate them, it's because you love them and you know that if you don't do something drastic and they don't turn around, 
they will be destroyed. Leprosy to the present day cannot be healed. Only arrested is called Hansen's disease. Likewise, sin cannot be healed. It must be cleansed through repentance and forgiveness of sins by the Lord Jesus. If you don't know Jesus Christ, maybe you're on the radio listening or the internet. God can cleanse you from your sin regardless of what you committed, regardless of what's happened. If you believe that he's the Messiah, that he can cleanse you and give you a brand new heart instantly like this leopard. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9 says. Likewise, our sin nature is arrested and overruled by our new divine nature to please God and to bring glory to him as we walk abiding in him. Peter puts it this way, as his divine power has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises that through these you may be partaker of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Lust is not exclusively sexual. It can be for money, it can be for fame, it can be for whatever. A strong desire that pulls you away from God. That is the master passion of your life. You find that in Second Peter 1, 3 through 4. So we have the same choice as this leper. We can see our miserable state and go to Jesus or we can remain the way we are. It's a choice, ladies and gentlemen. You will determine where you spend eternity. Heaven or the lake of fire. God doesn't choose that for you. You decide by who you believe to be the Messiah. You or Jesus. <laughs> it will affect your eternity. And so the healing of the leper revealed the importance of personal faith in the authority and the power of Jesus. The second miracle, the healing of the centurion's servant, is found in 5 through 13. In verse 5, the loving petition of the centurion is given to us. The location is declared. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, Capernaum is that city again on the north of the Sea of Galilee. He entered it. Some of you have been there also. Um, we will visit it again. And Capernaum is the city of Jesus. That was his headquarters for his ministry. It's the city of Nahum. That's what it means, Capernaum. Um, once again, um, this is the region where Jesus is ministering unto continually. <clears throat> and the occasion known as express. Um, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, pleading with him. And this centurion here, um, it means an officer in the army, but probably it was um, Herod Antipas uh, who was over him because um, there was no Roman army up there till 44 AD. But here this man, a centurion, he was over a hundred men. Uh, he had authority over them, as we'll see. Um, they were men of great authority, the centurions, uh, especially as we see them in Scripture. And every time they're presented in Scripture, they're presented in a positive light. Uh, even the one at the cross says, truly, this was the Son of God. They're always presented in a good light. Now, this centurion was a Gentile, not a Jew. 
Sometimes people say he's a, he was a proselyte. He can't be by the words he's using. Impossible. We'll, we'll show that to you. He stood outside the covenant of Israel. Um, he came pleading, which means parakaleo, to come alongside, to entreat, to beseech, to, to plead for as we'll see his servant here. The conditions described saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. He came reverently calling Jesus Lord. Once again, this word kurios can be used for respect like sir. But because of his affiliation with Israel, I think that he knows exactly who he's addressing. I believe he's addressing in his own mind and understanding the Messiah of the Jews. Luke gives us some important details in Luke 7, 3 through 5. When he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to plead with Jesus for his servant and that he was deserving because he loved Israel and built them a synagogue. So when you put Luke together, you realize that while Matthew is presenting the centurion himself asking, really it was through the uh, confederation or delegation of Jewish elders. Now there is no contradiction here. When an ambassador of the United States is sent to a country and he does, it does something or says something stupid, they don't charge him. They charge the United States because he's representing the United States. Okay? This was the custom of that day. Now, he came interceding for a servant who was sick lying at home here. The word servant, pious, can be translated boy or a young man. But Luke confirms that he was a servant by the word doulos in Luke 7, 2. So he was a young man who was a servant, but he was paralyzed. The word here means he was suffering from um, a relaxing of the nerves of the body on one, on, on one side, disabling him to be up. But Luke gives us a little more detail. He says that, that the servant was dear to the centurion and that he was ready to die in Luke 7, 2. So here again, the centurion is one of compassion, of love, and empathy. He isn't looking down on his servant. The word dreadfully indicates the intensity of the condition, terrible, grievous. And the word torment, it indicates the pain of the body and the mind that's going on. The petition notice was conceded. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The word heal, therapeuo, does it sound like therapeutic? <laughs> it means to serve, attend medically. It's found 16 times in Matthew. Luke confirms he was a Gentile, for as Jesus was returning with his elders, the elders, the Jewish elders, not being far from the house, the centurion then sent a friend to tell Jesus, I am not worthy that you should enter my house in Luke 7, 6, confirming that he is a Jew. If he entered the house, he would defile himself. You remember Peter going into the house of Cornelius in Acts 10? And he was accused of entering the house of a Gentile of being defiled. Okay, this was the Jewish mind. Notice the words ascribed to the centurion by Matthew were stated by the friends, that the friend that he sent, 
who spoke in this person just like the group of elders, okay? The centurions in the house. Again, no contradiction, but rather the supplementary detail that gives you the complete picture of what's going on. Look at verse 8. The humble disposition of the centurion is evident here. He knew Jesus was superior to him. There was a sharp discipline between Jesus and all the people. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Here again, we have the confirmation again. The word worthy simply means to be deserved or to be fit to be under his roof. Jesus was a Jew and the Messiah. He would be defiled again. He understood this. He loved the Jews. He loved Israel. He gave them a synagogue. Their authority was also different. He had the authority of Rome, limited, temporal. Jesus had all authority, unlimited, eternal. He understood this clearly. This is the problem with natural man. Natural man thinks he's God. You see, the savior of the world last century was to be science. Science has led it down the wrong road. True science doesn't contradict the Bible. But science has been tweaked in the theory of evolution. And all these hypotheses that have no basis for their presupposition. In fact, contradict science itself. Like global warming. The second biggest lie, now this century. <laughs> As a, this is what's causing people to be aggressive in the world and, you know, different things. Amazing to me. Now, he knew Jesus could heal his servant. Notice in verse 8, the faith of the centurion was in the authority and power of Jesus, but only speak a word. What an amazing statement. This guy's a Gentile. The faith of centurion in Jesus was sure, and my servant will be healed. This is a different word, to cure, to make whole. It's a stronger word that the Gentile uses, the centurion, than the word Jesus used. He knew how efficient authority worked. In verse 9, he understood delegated authority. He says, for I am also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. There were others greater than he over him. When they told him something, he did it. There were others who were under his authority, and when he told them, they did it. He knew that delegated authority worked. He said, and I say to this one, go, and he goes to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Very simple. Now, in a society, even that may not be Christian, when there is the understanding of authority and submission, and it's held onto, there is productivity, there is safety. Things get done. When you destroy that, those principles, then you have chaos. Authority and submission are biblical. Without those, nothing can get done. Waste of time, waste of money, 
Look to our nation. Everybody wants to be equal. But they're not. We're all different. We hold different positions in society. We're equal before God. But that doesn't take away from your position of authority as a husband. Your position of submission as a wife. As unto the Lord and only what the scriptures say. Not as some dictator. Or the boss at work and the employees who carry out those things. Everybody is so threatened by politically correctness that nothing can take, take place. Nothing can be done. Political correctness is imploding our society. It will collapse. Notice verse 10 through 13, the clear revelation of Jesus about the centurion. In 10, Jesus declared the faith of the centurion to be greater than that of the Jews. The initial response of Jesus was to be amazed. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. The word marvel means to, uh, to be had in admiration and awe. The word does not indicate that Jesus was caught by surprise, for he knew all things. He, no one had to tell him what was in man, John 2.25 says. Only twice did Jesus marvel in the New Testament. The other time is at the unbelief of the Jews in Mark 6.6. 6. One for the faith, the other one for the lack of faith. Not surprised, but he's expressing in his human state the response of those who had the greater responsibility and accountability because of the greater light to those who had lesser, and yet they acted in a greater measure to what they heard. To those that much is given, much more is required, ladies and gentlemen. You've been sitting under me for 37 years? Well, to you. Well, to you. If you don't live out what God has declared to you, what you've been learning, it's very, very important. Notice the faith of the centurion was a rebuke to the elders of the Jews. And he said to those who followed, that's the Jews, the elders, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. He was a Gentile. Here's the contrast. They were the people of God. In verse 11, Jesus prophesied to the elders of the Jews about the millennium. Now, he takes them because they're expecting the kingdom of God. What was a question that was asked constantly to Jesus by the disciples? Are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? At this time? No, not now. Because they had this present age. In the age to come, what? The kingdom age. They never saw the church age. So he goes right to it. Verse 11. There would be Gentiles to enter the kingdom age. Shocking to a Jew. Uh-uh. The authority is supreme. And I say to you. When he says that, pay attention. The number would not be few. That many will come from the east to west to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, in the kingdom of heaven, the ultimate kingdom age. The kingdom's in the midst of us. It's coming. It's in part. It's present and yet to come. Look at 12. There would be Jews who would not enter the kingdom age. This just must have floored them. They will be eternally separated from God, cast into the lake of fire. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into utter darkness. Shocking. They will be eternally punished in the lake of fire. People don't like this. Listen to me. This is not my book. I didn't write it. 
Listen carefully. It's Jesus who's speaking. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. By the way, the article is present in both of those things. Let me read it. The weeping, the gnashing. In other words, there never has been this type of suffering or ever will be. Now, some of you may not like that. You say, well, I don't believe in a God like that. Well, you think God's biting his nails over what you think? You think God's losing sleep? God's holy. His holiness demands his wrath. His wrath demands his, is demanded by his holiness. You understand? He makes provisions. If people don't make provisions, they end up in hell by their own choosing, by rejecting Jesus Christ. Jesus declared to the centurion in verse 13 the healing of the servant then. The proclamation that Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. He was to return to the house. This is the, the command, an imperative command in the present active tense. The revelation, notice, and as you have believed, so let it be done to you. The healing was attributed to the centurion's faith that Jesus could heal the servant. As you have believed, the indicative heiress active tense. He continued, he believed from the first word to the last word that he spoke to Jesus. Wow. The servant had been healed already. Listen to the words. So let it be done for you. Literally, be it. The imperative, eris. here's the key, passive. He was already healed. Wow. The confirmation in his servant was healed that same hour. The time his servant was healed was affirmed by the indicative eris. Passive tense again. The same hour emphasizing the time that centurion was petitioning for the servant. Wow. You know, we've had um, people be healed in different things here, and it's amazing to me. Uh, Amy Ken's here in the mid-90s. Um, she was just a young girl. Now she's probably mid-30s or something. And um, she had cancer. They did an x-ray on her from her neck to her torso, all of it, it was just completely black. And God healed her completely. She's married and has all kinds of kids now. Wendy Hanegraaff used to be one of our secretaries, married Peter Hanegraaff, who was on staff here for a while. Uh, stage five cancer, God healed her. They say she would never have kids. She's had extra kids. Now, God is sovereign. He heals whoever he wills, when he wills, and how he wills, right? God is sovereign. The ability of God to heal whenever the condition may be is never the problem. He's omniscient. There's nothing difficult for him. Is there anything too difficult for me, he says to Jeremiah? Of course not. At times we're told the healing was due to the faith of an individual in Scripture, in the context, like here. At other times, the faith was the faith of other people that were praying, like the men that tore down the roof and let the guy down. Jesus says, it was the faith of them who brought him. There are times when God just heals a person sovereignly as he wills. Whether the person believes it or not, doesn't matter. God says, I'm going to heal you. What are you going to do about it? My father had a hole that big in his, in his liver. God healed him. Completely. 
By the way, my dad wasn't a Christian when God healed him. <laughs> You're going to tell God, oh, God can't do that. Well, take it up with him. Wow. Hebrews 11, 1 and 6 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Those that come to God must believe that he is, and he is the reward of those who diligently seek him. At times, Christians, like the elders of the Jews here, come to a place where they no longer believe Jesus can heal or even bother to take everything to him. And sometimes because, you know, we're so dependent on ourselves, our money or our jobs or whatever it may be, or we become now overeducated. And um, we, we don't really trust Jesus, you know. God wants us to depend on him for our daily bread, for our jobs. Matthew 6, 11 deals with that in the Lord's, what's called the Lord's Prayer. God wants us to depend on him for our spiritual wisdom and the power through the Holy Spirit to be able to live in this world, as Ephesians 5, 17 and 18 says. I see many of your lives that I've known you for years, the things that God has taken you through, what he's brought you through, and how you trust and depend on the Lord, and what a glorious example you've been to us and those around you. It's an amazing thing. God wants us to never lose the priority of life. Are you ready for it? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things shall be added unto you. Matthew 6.33 We begin there. You must remain there. You must remain there, ladies and gentlemen. Do not allow the storms of life to drive you away from the Lord. Make sure that your house is founded and built upon the rock. Very important, the previous chapter, 7. I'm not talking about the corrupt teaching of the faith movement of positive confession that teach that if you just believe everything positive and, and not confess nothing negative, God has to, and God becomes our little genie, our little servant boy. No, that's heresy. But I am telling you that we're to trust God for these things and to allow him to be have the first shot at it. And when he says no, you should be as excited as when he says yes. But too often, we're like our children. When they, we say no to them, boom, my dad hates me. He wants to make, he wants to make my life miserable. This and that. I can't believe it. I'm going to run away. And when I get run over, he'll really feel bad. You know, that kind of stuff. So just like our children, we do the same thing with God. Wow. Biblical faith is always related to the revelation of God's word. If you believe, but what is it you believe? If it's not related to the revelation of God's word in context, it's not biblical faith. It's just subjective. It's twisted. God's word is objective truth in its context. You can take God at his word. Biblical faith is always subject to the will of God, and the will of God is found in the word of God. So if you're going to know how to pray and what to pray for, then you better be a man, a woman of the word. It isn't feelings, it isn't emotions, ladies and gentlemen. Those that do have built their house on the sand. And when the storms have come, great has been their fall. First John 5, 14 and 15 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, 
whatever we ask, we know that uh, we have the petition that we ask of him. First John 5, 14 and 15, his will. Lord, I lay it at your feet, if you're willing. I know you can. You decide. Wow. That's faith. The healing of the centurion servant revealed the importance of the faith of, of others in the authority and power of Jesus. When people come and ask you to pray for them, that's your part now. They, they believe you're spiritual. Don't disappoint them. It's important. Notice thirdly comes the healing of Peter's mother-in-law in 14 through 17. 14 through 15, the arrival of Jesus at the house of Peter here. Jesus encounters the woman sick in 14. This occurred the instant Jesus steps into the house. Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, Peter was a fisherman, as you know, by trade, um, along with his brother James. Um, chapter 4, verse 18 tells us in Mark 1, 16, Peter was from Bethsaida, which means house of fish, on the Sea of Galilee, according to John uh, 144 and Peter and his brother Andrew lived in Capernaum and um, it's confirmed by Mark and by Luke in Mark 121 and Luke 438 Peter was also married and he took his wife into, along with him with ministry Matthew 8:14 here and then also 1 Corinthians 9 5 and Mark tells us too and Luke tells us Peter and his brother Andrew were partners in the fishing business on the Sea of Galilee with James and John the sons of Zebedee the sons of thunder Bad dudes. You didn't mess with them. Luke 5.10. Jesus witnessed, notice that she was sick. He steps right into that house. It's a modest house. Just a square house. They just subdivided for their needs. He saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. This is where Peter lived. Capernaum. If you go with us in May, we'll, we'll look at that house that supposedly is his. Can't be sure, but it's there. Gives you the idea. Mark says, Peter, Andrew, and James, and John told Jesus about her at once in Mark 1, 29 and 30. See, when you know Jesus and you believe in Jesus and you see needs like these, you don't try to handle them. You, you, you point people to Jesus. You ask Jesus to take care of them, right? We're supposed to have compassion. We're supposed to pray for one another, right? We're supposed to be there for one another. Luke tells us that they made requests for him concerning this very high fever. It was a very, very high fever. Luke 4, 38. And notice Jesus healed them, the sick woman, his mother-in-law. Verse 15. The method again was by physical touch. So he touched her hand, just like the leopard. There is a certain thing about touch. It's good. It, it communicates my love for you, my affection. But there's also the sinful aspect of that corrupts the touch. You know, there's a hug and then there's a hug, you know, and there's a difference between them, okay? And, and, and if you hug people around here, I want to make sure you hug men and women, not just women, okay? It's very important, okay? Um, The result was complete recovery, notice, and the fever left her. This was not a mild fever, the very high fever, Luke tells us. And the outcome, notice, was to reciprocate. 
And she arose and served them. The word served there, diaconio, is the same word we use for deacon, but it literally means to attend to them. It's in the imperfect tense indicating that Jesus was invited for dinner and she became ill. And now what does she do? The minute he heals her, she just picks up where she left off. Grateful to him, reciprocating him. Not feeling that she is entitled and that, you know, after all, you know, I, I, I do a lot for Jesus. It's kind of nice that he touched me. Really? Well, you're lucky he didn't touch you a little harder. But very grateful here. Look at 16 through 17. This is actually the summary statement that we kind of saw before chapter 5, the summary statement of the first section. This is a summary statement of the ministry of Jesus. The arrival of those in need to see Jesus at the house of Peter. The day is indicated to be the end of the Sabbath when evening had come. The Sermon on the Mount to this point is one day. Luke 4.31, Mark 1.21-32 indicates this as well as here. 2,000 paces from the city wall could be traveled. It's within that range. Simple. The Sabbath being over, now the demands on Jesus did not let up. Those tormented by demons were brought to him who were demon-possessed. He delivers them. He casts out the spirits with a word, just like the leopard. A word. We'll see other accounts tonight. The powerful words of Jesus. He dismissed none. He healed all who were sick. Now we can't say that. We can't do that. We can't say well, God heals everybody all the time. Is that not true? We're going to see how he finishes this summary statement. The prophet Isaiah, notice, had predicted the ministry of Jesus. This is in fulfillment, a key phrase of Matthew. He's writing to the Jew. This was done in fulfillment of, spoken by the Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself bore our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. In verse 17 there, the quote is Isaiah 53, 4. The word there for bore, bastazo, means to take up in order to bear. The context is for the provisions for physical healing and the demon exorcism and everything else. Now, Peter picks it up in chapter 2 of Peter about our sins. Our sins were carried uh, were, were done away by Jesus completely and it's categorical for everybody every time anybody calls upon Jesus. But the healing of disease and that, the infirmities by the stripes we are healed, is a provision, but it isn't categorically every time for everybody every time because God is sovereign in this choosing. You understand? The priority is our spiritual healing. And we have the great provision for physical as we pray for one another. The first Thursday of every month, this last Thursday, you know that we dismiss our Thursday study and we have communion and then we pray for the needs and then we worship the Lord and then we anoint people with oil, lay hands, and we pray for the need that God would touch you physically. Sometimes God heals people, sometimes it doesn't. But it doesn't stop us from doing that once a month to give God the opportunity to, to work in the midst of us and to just worship Him. 
There are those who do not believe in the supernatural gifts for today, teaching that they are confined only to the first apostolic church, and now they cease, but nowhere will you ever find that in Scripture. They have to twist the Scripture out of context to teach that completely. James says, If anyone among you is sick, let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. James 5.14 Now, if it's true what men say, James should have put, but now this is only for the apostolic church. Really? Hmm. Luke says in Acts, And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with a fever and dysentery, and Paul went to him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. Acts 28.8 Doesn't mean Paul healed him, but God healed him sovereignty. Right? You might be sick of something. You've asked the Lord to heal you, and he doesn't. And then you pray for someone else, and God heals them. How do you like those apples? How do you respond? There's no set formula. Notice that for anybody that's healed in the Bible. Jesus does it differently. He never healed the same way twice. He's sovereign. Sometimes he told the blind man, go wash in the poolside of home. Other times he grabs dirt and spits in his hand and spits and touches his eyes. Now, how did he do it? If I want a formula, did he pick up the dirt and then spit in his eye and throw the dirt in his eye? Or did he pick up the dirt and go throw it in there and then put it in his eye? There's no formula. It's not the words. It's not the formula. It's not the method. It's the words of Jesus, the promise of Jesus. And yet, we do lay hands. We anoint. We believe that God can do it. And so we're assured that Jesus is the same today as yesterday. And he loves us and he'll work in the midst of us. It's not the hands. It's not the oil. It's not the formula. It's a humble petition to come before God knowing that he alone can deal with these issues, not ourselves. God can heal anybody through prayer, even from long distance. You can pray for someone across the state, across the world. God can heal them if God wills. Sometimes God uses sickness and death to chasten his people. First Corinthians 11.30 says some of you are sick and some of you are dead. God does that. The need of people physically and spiritually will always be overwhelming, ladies and gentlemen. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that hates God. We live in a world that loves self and sin. But we live in this world to preach Jesus. Repentance towards him through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you and I are here. To be his ambassadors. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church of Jesus Christ all, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. We believe what the word says. We trust what it is and we go to him and him alone. And he is able to do it. If you're here, you don't know Jesus Christ. He tells you absolutely categorically that if you repent from your sins, he will cleanse you from your sins. He will bury you in the deepest ocean. He will make you a child of God. I don't care what has happened. I don't care what you've done. He will make you whiter than snow. Right now. By grace through faith. And so the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, 
reveals the importance of faith for our own families in the authority and power of Jesus. Do you get sick? Do you first go to Jesus? I always carry a little bottle of oil, and so do my grandkids. And when I, I rarely get sick, but when I have, they all come over. Hey, like a grandpa, and they all got their little bottle of oil, you know. Do you believe that? Your faith will be that you carry it. Now, there's nothing annoying about the oil, no power in the oil. There's just emblems of faith. Okay, Lord, you said lay hands, anoint, we pray. But we know you do the healing. Where are you today? Are you born again? Then if you're not, you need to repent. You have some needs, physical, spiritual, you need to go to the Lord. He's the one with the authority and the power to do it. And so, Jesus, the ultimate authority, descended to manifest his miraculous power to meet the urgent needs through these three miracles. The healing of the leper, the healing of the centurion's servant, and the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Absolute power. Still available today, ladies and gentlemen. Lord, thank you for your loving goodness. We love you. We thank you. We pray for those that are here. We pray for those over the internet and the radio, Lord, that you would minister their hearts, that they call on your name to be saved. And Lord, if someone's sick and they call on your name, that you would touch them, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or maybe out there listening, you can be saved right now by repenting of your sins. A simple prayer of repentance, like the one I'm going to say right now, you say it to the Lord and he will save you right now by grace through faith, that not of yourself is a gift of God. This is your prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.